Welcome to Job Sharing and Beyond, the future of work podcast that goes beyond the traditional nine to five. I am Karen Tischler, speaker, consultant, and host of the show, where we hear from global experts every other week to discover innovative solutions and tips on how to remain a relevant employer in the future. Hello everybody. Before I share more details about my guest today, I want to make sure that you know that besides this podcast, there is also Emily's Past Consulting's EPC newsletter, where I share interesting research findings, I talk about updates on my previous Job Sharing and Beyond podcast guests and I give, give little teasers about upcoming guests. And I also have a Q&A interview. In the latest newsletter, I interviewed Eva O'Brien, podcast host of Happier at Work. If you would like to subscribe to this newsletter, please head over to Emily's Past Consulting's website, which is E-M-I-L-Y-S-P-A-T-H dot C-A. And there you also find all the previous episodes of Job Sharing and Beyond. But now, without further ado, I am super excited to be sharing more details about our podcast guest today. Alex Su Yang Kim Peng studies people, technologies, and the worlds they make. His latest book, Shorter, explains how companies all over the world in a variety of industries are shortening their working hours while improving productivity and profitability. Shorter is the third in a series of books that makes the case for recognizing the value of rest in creative and prolific lives and blends science and history to better understand how we can live and work better in the digital age. His previous books, Rest, Why You Get More Done When You Work Less and The Destruction Addiction have been translated into 14 languages. Through his company, Strategy and Rest, Alex speaks and works around the world with companies who want to apply these insights in their organizations. Alex received a PhD in History and Sociology of Science from the University of Pennsylvania and has been a lecturer or visiting scholar at Stanford University, UC Berkeley, Oxford University and Microsoft Research Cambridge. Thank you so much for coming onto the show today, Alex. Oh, thank you, Karen. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. We have a lot of people listening in from all over the world. So I ask every guest, where are you calling in from? And is there a particular site or food that is something you would recommend people to when they are visiting your area? Sure. So um, I am uh, in Silicon Valley, where I've lived for the last you know twenty plus years, and um, I suppose you know for people visiting, really the first thing to try is our phenomenal sourdough bread, which is some of the best in the world. Though you know the Bay Area is just an astonishing 
um, location for great food from all over the world. So that is just the beginning of, you know, your culinary exploration, um, you know, by no means the end of it. Thank you. Being German, I grew up with a lot of different bread, so I appreciate you <laughs> mentioning sourdough bread. Now, Alex, you are the author of several books, among them Rest and Schulte. Could you tell our listeners what made you write, in particular, these two books? Sure. So, you know, Rest grew out of um, uh, a time that I spent at at Microsoft Research in Cambridge, England. Um, I had a sabbatical there. And this had come after working as sort of a consultant and futurist here in the Valley for about 10 or so years. And it was very, very interesting work, but I was kind of getting burned out. And I felt like I was under constant time pressure, always sort of half a project behind. In other words, very much like you know all of my friends and, and I think probably lots of listeners. And I had a chance to go to Cambridge and kind of downshift and work on some different stuff. And after about a month there, I had this epiphany that I was reading fantastic stuff. I was getting all kinds of things done. I was meeting interesting people. I was having really great ideas, but I didn't feel the sort of sort of time pressure and kind of sense of sort of impending collapse that is just kind of part of professional life here in the Valley. And it made me realize just how much all of that was part of the everyday background of my professional existence and sort of make, started me thinking that, you know, actually maybe it is not the case that we have to go th that we have to live that way that we have to sort of experience time like that in order to do really good work maybe our assumptions about overwork and stress and burnout that you know success is a kind of sort of race against time um maybe those ideas actually are all backwards that really in order to do good work you need to learn how to slow down and to use uh, to use rest and leisure in ways that help you be more creative. And that got me started on sort of a, a, a path that led me to, you know, looking at the lives of very famous scientists, writers, composers, generals, politicians, and seeing the, and, and of exploring the usually hidden role that rest played in their lives. So, and then discovering also a bunch of neuroscience that helped explain why, uh, why it was that these people tended to organize, you know, organize their days in very particular kinds of ways, no matter what field they were in, and helped me understand how those routines helped make people more creative on a daily basis and gave people more kind of sustained and sustainable creative lives. Shorter is a kind of organizational sequel to rest. It's about how companies put the lessons of rest into practice by shortening their work days or their work weeks without cutting salaries or reducing productivity. And I was moved to write it partly because it, it was the people I talk about in rest were highly accomplished. Um, you know, many of them were Nobel Prize winners or won Pulitzers or other things. 
But they also were people who generally had an awful lot of control over their time. Um, and so they offered lessons for you know, a kind of ideal of sort of creative work and creative life. But the reality is that most of us most of us work in places that don't make that ideal possible. And so I wanted to, uh, you know, I wanted to understand, was it actually possible to change the structures that usually get in the way of our ability to take rest seriously and to make it more a part of our daily routine and our daily lives? And I think these companies show that in a variety of industries, at a variety of scales, all over the world, it actually is possible. And so when I saw that, um, when I realized that there was this global movement of companies that were doing, that were approaching the same problems in very similar ways, independent of each other, without knowing about these, uh, you know, these other trials and tests and successes, I realized I had a really interesting story here that built very nicely on rest. So that's the story of the two of those books. Thank you so much, Alex, for sharing. Now, um, when you are talking about shorter work weeks, um, people might be thinking about potentially the four-day work week that recently gained a lot of popularity because Jacinda Arden in New Zealand, you know, was talking about implementing it to help the local tourism to go back up again because of COVID-19. And then I had as a previous guest on the show, Charlotte Lockhart, the CEO of the four-day week global. Um, so could you explain um, to our listeners like some examples of um, the type of organizations and their type of shortened um, um, time or work time that you found? Sure. So. Um, what I was really interested in were companies that were moving, moving to reduce the total number of hours that people worked mm -hmm. without cutting productivity or sort of sacrificing goals or sort of client deliverables and also were not cutting salaries. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is a tradition in, you know, particularly in, in you know, in uh, manufacturing during periods of economic slowdowns or overproduction, you know, factories will cut working hours in order to cut production. You also cut salaries at the same time. And this is a temporary move intended to kind of rebalance inventory or a company's balance sheet. What I was really interested in was, was a different kind of approach, something that, you know, that is um, a permanent reduction of work time mm -hmm. that is not intended mainly as a cost save uh, cost savings measure, but it was intended to improve work life balance, to address issues of sort of burnout, of recruitment and retention, to help make companies more stable and more sustainable kinds of places to work, and so. And finally, I was interested, especially in industries where long hours and overwork are the norm. So places like restaurants, where the working hours can be really brutal, or software startups, advertising agencies, design firms, you know, places where you know, pulling all-nighters in order to get a project out the door is not at all unusual a thing, and people 
you know, people, uh, people take for granted that they've got to be always on and always available on, on nights and weekends. And so I was especially interested in places, in those kinds of places. And the kinds of reductions I saw um, sort of fall into a couple big categories. One of them, the most popular, is a move simply to four working days of eight hours each. Mm -hmm. So a 32-hour work week over four days, generally with Friday off, though that's not always the case. Um, there are people who make a strong argument for taking, for example, Wednesdays off or having a rota system where different people will have different days off um, sort of by quarter or by some other system. The second, the second most popular work time reduction is a six-hour day. So you move to a 30-hour work week, but you're still working five days a week. Um, this is somewhat closer to what you see, you know, in... Um, some companies in the Netherlands or Germany, for mm -hmm. example, right? And then there's also um, something that, uh, uh, a, a variation of this is the doors of the company will stay open for 12 hours, but people will work six-hour shifts. Mm -hmm. So um, this is especially popular in retail establishments or government where, you know, you basically have lots of foot traffic and you want, you know, you want, your customer-facing side to be as sort of accessible as possible. Mm -hmm. And then finally, there is a model, one company calls Free Fridays, where you leave the company open on the fifth day and people are free to come in and work on their own projects. Um, <clears throat> this is especially popular with like software developers and engineering folks where, you know, the, uh, where, you know, new technologies are constantly being developed. There are always new programming languages to play around with, new things you want to tinker with. And generally, you don't have time for that in your everyday everyday life. And so having one day a week set aside for that kind of professional development or for volunteer work or other kinds of places where you're putting your skills to use can be really appealing. Um, so those are the major kinds of kinds of ways that companies will sort of will move their schedules around. But in all the cases, you know, no matter how they redesign the day, they're doing it. You know, they feature an absolute reduction in working hours without salary cuts and without productivity cuts. I really enjoyed reading your book and learning so much about all the different types of case studies you presented. And as you just said, that there are so many different aspects of shortening a work week. Now, because you have so many case studies, one might have thought that you would maybe, um, you know, have chapters by case studies, but you actually chose a very different setup of the book. Could you share our, uh, with our listeners how you did that? Mm-hmm. So um, I organized the book around stages in uh, the design thinking process. And design thinking is a kind of design method or kind of problem solving method developed in, uh, here in Silicon Valley starting in the 1970s. So IDEO, the company that developed the first commercial computer mouse um, and a number of you know, other products, they helped develop the, cru the, kind of, uh, the cruiser bicycle They've worked with snowboard companies, with you know trains, with hospitals. 
um, they're one of the great pioneers of the design thinking, the thinking method. The reason I chose that was, first of all, I had a couple, a couple company leaders talk explicitly about using design thinking as a tool for redesigning the workday. Hmm. That they realized that, you know, that that they had used design thinking to create their products, but they could also use design thinking to shape time or to shape the structure of their companies. And, you know, that this was, this was a powerful tool for them, a powerful way of sort of organizing and managing the process. And then lots of other companies had kind of come up with um, their own processes that just happened to follow the stages in design thinking so and also kind of captured uh, captured the spirit of design thinking so you know there is at the begin at the beginning of any design thinking process um you know a lot of consideration of what users want um an effort to kind of get inside the minds of you know of users and to try to frame your problem not not in terms of how do you make this product go faster right or you know how do you make it bigger mm -hmm. but rather what is it you know what is it that when you put into a person's hands are they going to find really compelling and so starting that way is a good way of kind of broadening your thinking of opening up the kind of questioning process and inviting ideas that you wouldn't uh, you wouldn't have otherwise an emphasis on users in this case generally the workers themselves mm -hmm. is the first thing you know another is um, involving users in the design process. So there's a lot of movement back and forth of sharing early prototypes, of getting feedback, of kind of crafting subsequent designs with input from prospective users. And in the companies that, uh, that I look at, in virtually every case, the initial impetus for shortening the work week comes from the top. There is a founder or a charismatic CEO who has the moral authority and the sheer power to say, we're going to try this radically new thing. But the actual work of figuring out how the scheduling is going to happen, how you use technology differently, et cetera, that's all done by employees themselves. Mm -hmm. Another important feature is an awful lot of prototyping, right? You try out, you know, you try a hundred different of you know different things you rapidly see if they work or not you discard the ones that don't work and you incorporate the ones that do and these companies do a lot of experimenting with tools with ways of working with schedules that you know really is lifted straight from design thinking and then you have an evaluation stage where after a certain period you kind of look at your metrics you figure out, you know, you have a kind of state, a stable design and you decide, all right, is this something that's good enough to ship or not? And at that stage in the book, companies make decisions about whether or not to make a four day week or a six hour day permanent. Mm -hmm. And so, but I, so the design thinking stages mapped nicely on to what companies were doing, whether they were, you know, advertising agencies or design research firms or restaurants or nursing homes. And so it struck, you know, when I realized that, I realized that there's an interesting story here, not just a hundred, you know, not just a mm -hmm. hundred little interesting stories, but one really big story as well. 
and that this provided for readers who wanted to try it themselves, who were intrigued by this idea. Um, it gave them a framework for thinking about how they might set up their own experiments in their own companies so that they could do it themselves. I really like the way the book was set up. And one other reason I was so interested about it is because IDEO um, very recently was um, working together with other organizations such as the Better Life Lab at New America that was um, founded by Rashid um, Schulte, who is also on the back of your book as um, mm -hmm. one of the testimonial writers. And so basically that project was called Like We Care, which is the result of a year long investigation into caregiving in America. And that is in unpaid caregiving in particular is one of the topics I feel very strongly about that it is often completely hidden and not mentioned at all and so i felt it was just such a coincidence that that all um fit together and um one of the things i feel that covid 19 has really shown that economies are functioning only because of that underlying often unpaid care work and so the shorting as uh, shortened working hours I feel are often better aligned to um, help with that parental unpaid care work and the work-life balance. So could you tell our listeners a bit more about what you found about this in your books, interviews and your research? Sure. I would hope that one of the things that um, the pandemic has taught all of us is, first of all, that this kind of Sort of care work that we often regard as, you know, lower status and sort of and, and less skilled is actually supremely important for making lives good and making the economy run. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we could we could have survived the last nine months without hedge fund managers and venture capitalists and frankly, a lot of consultants and writers. Um, but, you know, sort of nurses and kindergarten teachers turn out to be foundational. Um, as for care in companies that have shortened their working hours, it's certainly the case, as you would expect, that a shorter work week gives more time for various kinds of care. You know, um, whether that is sort of care for others or taking care of oneself. It is a recurring theme of interviews that you know, when you talk to people about what they do with their, you know, their new free day or mm -hmm. extra 10 hours a week, that, you know, care is often one of the major things that, uh, that people spend time on. I was talking about this with um, one set of, sort of co-founders of a design firm in London, and one of them said that what people do with their free time is they care, right? Mm -hmm. They care for themselves, they care for their family, they care for their community, and virtually everything that they do is an expression of care in one way or another. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a rather powerful way of sort of thinking about how people, how people choose to spend their time when they have, you know, 
an opportunity to have more time for themselves. Right. Um, what they tend to do is they tend to share it with others. And I think we sometimes have a perception that when you give people another day per, you know, sort of per week, that what they're going to spend it on is a longer bender. Um, and, you know, or that they are in some way going to going to waste that time as if it is, you know, as if it is the responsibility of sort of capital to manage people's free time or that they have any kind of, you know, sort of any kind of say in how that uh, how that should be spent. But, you know, the reality is that um, when you give people time, they tend to actually spend it in smart and pro-social kinds of ways, which I think is an important lesson and a rather optimistic one mm -hmm. for, um, you know, for the future of work and the future of leisure. So when I was doing my research um, about you, what I found really interesting, you had a podcast interview on leaders with babies. And there you talked about the shortened work week, how it is actually changing hiring patterns. Could you elaborate on that, please? Yes, this was one of the most interesting findings um, in the book, which is that companies that shorten their work weeks go from um, looking for people who are you know, who have the flexibility to work very long hours to uh, sort of to looking for people who have an ability to be or very efficient, ruthless with their time, who are capable of value, putting a higher value on their own time and others um, who can you know, collaborate and work together in order to achieve the organization's goals, hit deadlines, and then get out of there. Part of what that means is that these companies often explicitly look for working mothers who want to get back into, you know, get back into their industries or are looking for jobs that, you know, that have um, reduced work schedules. Mm -hmm. So there is, you know, there are, uh, there are amazing statistics about how even decades after working mothers began going into the workforce in large numbers and after companies, often well-meaning companies, have implemented policies to make flexible work more accessible or part-time work more accessible. That there's still an awful lot of places where um, women or to a much lesser degree um, fathers are penalized for moving to part-time work or flexible work in order to um, create more time for caregiving. Uh, sociologists refer to this as the flexibility stigma. And women who do this find that you know, they, are, they are more likely to be passed over for, for promotions, they're put on less interesting projects, uh, while they themselves find that they have to spend more time engaging in the kind of coordination labor um, work in order to stay visible to their colleagues and to their bosses and to and, you know, demonstrate that they're capable of, of doing the work and are, and are interested in it. And so doing that at a distance involves an additional layer of time and labor that you don't have to engage in when you're, sort of when you're in the office. In contrast, and so as a result, you, know, sort of you see a situation where um, motherhood essentially exacts a penalty mm -hmm. um, 
Whereas in companies that move to four-day work weeks, motherhood commands a premium. You know, it is a signal that you have a, that you have certain organizational skills and professional skills, but also that you've that you have developed uh, you've both developed a capacity to manage your time, and the fact and the fact that you have this big external thing, right, a family life to which you want to return ceases to be a negative and becomes a positive because what it means is that you have a very strong incentive to figure out how to do what normally is five days worth of work in four or eight hours in six so that you can go and you know be at the gates when your kids get out of school and so that you know it turns so it really has um, a pretty substantial impact on labor markets and on hiring. And of course, parents who work in these companies, it's really tough to, um, to get them out. Um, they exhibit high degrees of loyalty, yeah. high degrees of happiness. And for small companies, particularly, you know, a four-day week gives them access to experienced professional labor of a sort that they might not ordinarily be able to get, right? If you're a small software company, you can't pay the kinds of salaries that you know a Google or an Apple can, right. but you can um, hire, you know, you can hire working moms who would be, you know, who who worry that they would be treated with a degree of suspicion at sort of more conventional large companies, but who see you know, who see smaller places that work four day weeks as offering, offering a culture and offering a kind of life that, uh, that is supremely appealing and makes a lot of sense to them. I just thought that was so important, you know, to find that in your book, because I'm isn't it all? Yeah, yeah. it's awesome. It really is. <laughs> it's I'm I'm such a strong, you know, proponent and that there are so many skills that one learns and you know, like I myself, like before I was a mother and now as I'm a mother, when I look at the learning curve I went through and I feel everybody who whether it is looking after kids or taking care of elderly relatives, caregiving provides so many different skills that otherwise yes. one just wouldn't um, learn. And um, so now um, one thing, like as we are talking a lot about flexibility, I'm a big proponent of job sharing. And, mm -hmm. and now have you encountered a lot of um, conversations about job sharing in these um, research interviews you have done or is that something that just hasn't come up very much at all um there is a variation that in which um people will have to get a better understanding of each other's jobs or better divisions of labor mm -hmm. around work so that for example if you know if if you have um, teams that are in Monday through Thursday and Tuesday through Friday, mm -hmm. that there is more coordination that they have to do in order to make sure that work gets handed off or that clients can be attended to at the same level no matter what day of the week sort of we're at. Now, this does not generally translate into um, sort of into kind of job sharing schemes where two people 
two people share the same job and divide the salary between them. Mm -hmm. um, and however, you know, I think one of the lessons here is order for companies is that in both cases, it's necessary for firms to have uh, to have a high degree of clarity about job roles and responsibilities, workflows, um, deadlines, etc. Basically, a lot of or a lot of structure around jobs and around work in order to enable flexibility. Mm -hmm. We often think of, you know, we often think of strong organizational structures as being mainly stultifying and bureaucratizing, right? Reducing flexibility for workers. But it's also the case that an absence of structure, of clear lines of reporting, of you know fuzzy workflows create enormous amounts of labor for workers as well and that the you know and that the sort of the coordination work that normally is done by the institution ends up getting pushed down onto individuals and so it is a version of flexibility that comes at an extremely high price for individuals. And so I think that, you know, uh, that, uh, that what, what companies that move to four-day weeks suggest is that if you want to introduce greater flexibility into your organization, whether it's in the form of reduced working hours, whether it's in the form of sort of job sharing or something else, that you actually, that you know, tightening, tightening up your processes, tightening up your workflows, you know, documenting everything that you do um, is a tool to enable that rather than something that will make all of the, any of those things. In order to really reduce that stigma of flexibility, I believe we need to have many more um, male role models. And often it is still the case that the top management is really a male. And so can you give me some examples where it was male company leaders who were deliberately choosing to reduce the work hours for their organizations to allow for more active time for employees with their families. And so that they themselves weren't, you know, secretly parenting, but saying, okay, it's, I don't know, 3.30, 4 o'clock. I am leaving now to pick up my son daughter from school rather than, oh, I have a dentist appointment as a pretense. Right, right. Um, first off, becoming a parent is one of the things that, um, triggers conversations about moving to a shorter work week. Mm -hmm. And a huge number of company founders have, especially young children. And so in almost every case, there is a sense that, you know, they, that just at, that they themselves want the same thing that their employees want, you know, which is sort of more time, more time to be better parents. Mm -hmm. For me, I think the most, you know, the most explicit example of this is a, a restaurant in um, Edinburgh, Scotland called Azel. The, the founder and chef, a guy named Stuart Ralston, decided when he moved the restaurant to a four-day week that they were going to close on Sundays. Now, Sunday is one of the busiest days for restaurants. Right. And so this was kind of a controversial decision. But his calculation was that 
you know, he had a young son mm -hmm. who before too long was going to start school. And he figured, you know what? If I give myself, if we stay closed on Sundays, I've got Sunday with the kid. And, you know, the, and his son was never going to be going to school on Sundays. So this was, you know, this right. was a, this was a guaranteed day with the family. And so, you know, Azel made some changes to how it operated. It was able to fit in a couple other tables. So increase the number of covers. He got a bigger stove and he did a few other things so that they were able to accommodate more people the rest of the week to make up for the busy Sunday. But, you know, uh, but I, I think that's that that for me is the clearest example of making making what in the restaurant industry is a really tough choice. Right. In order to make sure that in the future, um, you know, Stuart Ralston was going to have more time with his kids and more time to be a parent. Thank you. This is such a perfect example. Now, um, how do other organizations that you um, talked with, how did they make their work more productive and efficient so that they were able to work fewer hours? Was there like a theme or the main, I don't know, top three or five things that they did to make it more efficient? Right. Um, since we're talking about a wide variety of industries, right. there's, you know, sort of there's a there's a lot of variation there. But very broadly speaking, I think we can say that advances in technology, whether you're talking about computer networks or you know, web based services, um, software have made work far more productive than, you know, 20 or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. The problem that we have is that we have either a taken those productivity gains and given them to capital by either downsizing, you know, downsizing staffs, requiring workers to take on more work, um, or we, you know, uh, or you know, designed gig economies and you know, sort of flexible work that sort of that benefits capital. The other thing we've done we, is that we've tended to, to allow um, managerial processes or workflows to be more casual and consequently place more, uh, place more responsibility on workers for managing their time and their work. What this means is that, you know, in essence, and studies have found that between multitasking, distractions, interruptions, meetings, bad processes, the average knowledge worker loses a minimum of two hours of productive time every day. In other words, we're in a situation where the four-day week essentially is already here. Right. It's just buried under all kinds of organizational rubble. And so the challenge that these that, uh, companies face is to kind of, uh, to to, to clear that stuff away and thereby make it, you know, make it possible for people to actually work four days rather than five. And they do that through, broadly speaking, um, sort of three big things. And one is uh, tackle meetings, right? Sort of meetings tend to be too long, too big, too vague. Mm -hmm. And so uh, place, uh, companies will, you know, replace the... Um, you know, the Monday morning 
all hands meeting that takes two hours with a 10 minute stand up. Um, they will change the default for meetings from one hour to 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. And they'll have a bunch of other discipline in order to enforce that and to make meetings more actionable and also to think more about what kinds of communications they've, they've used meetings for that they can push on to you know, sort of group chat or email or so forth. The second thing, and that leads to the second, which is um, rethinking how they use technologies. So, you know, the modern office tends to be uh, sort of a kind of carnival of distraction. <laughs> and so getting a handle on that can go a long way to helping you or helping your employees be more productive. I think an important thing to note there is that this is not just about individuals having better practices around checking email or you know being more focused because focus attention you know the ability to say you know to ignore your inbox these aren't just matters of like individual moral capability these aren't just you know it's not just about your capacity to pay attention these are social things mm -hmm. right an awful lot of our pressure to stay on top of our inboxes comes from the fact that other people expect us to reply instantaneously right. to messages and so you have to deal with the social and the cultural norms around technology use if you're going to make any progress here so that means not thinking just in terms of how can I make myself more productive, but what do we all need to do together in order to relieve the pressure to you know, stay on our inboxes or constantly check voicemail or always be on Slack. The third thing is to redesign the workday to create better boundaries between deep focused work or other kinds of, you know, other kinds of work or work times that... Uh, people really need and non-work time, meaning both you know, divisions between um, deep work time, meetings, like coffee breaks and lunch, and also between the workday as a whole and your personal time after work. So this, so very simply, what this means is identifying maybe a couple hours a day or a few hours per week where people have permission to ignore their inboxes, to be a little bit antisocial, to be heads down and to focus on the work that, you know, that requires serious concentration and, you know, that, uh, and that they can make serious progress on in a couple uninterrupted hours than they could in you know, six semi-distracted hours. And then after that, there were a thousand and one other things that, you know, you do depending upon whether you are a traditional Japanese inn or you are you know, an automobile repair center in Sweden or you are a software developer in Philadelphia. But those three major things, reducing meetings, getting a handle on distracting technology and redesigning the workday can go an awful long way to making it possible to reduce working hours without any hit at all on or to productivity, while also making people's working lives and their lives generally much better. You just mentioned three very different examples of industries that you were researching. So there might be some listeners out here. They might not necessarily be in a knowledge um, type industry, but it might be maybe mining, trucking, a bakery. So how would 
a shortened work week work there? Mm -hmm. So um, in, for example, manufacturing and repair places, those are the ones that have generally gone to shorter shifts okay. with sort of longer retail hours. Mm -hmm. um, also, in the case of manufacturing, sometimes they'll go to four-day weeks rather than five because that saves energy on warming up the production line, warming up the machines, melting mm -hmm. the steel, etc. Right. And you know, every time you do that, you need to keep the you need to keep the line operating for X number of hours just in order to recover the cost of turning on the lights and switching on the heaters. I have not yet seen um, places like, you know, essentially sort of extractive industries, like, you know, sort of mines or oil rigs right, going, to, right. you know, going to this model. And it may well be that, um, you know, in, you know, on oil rigs, for example, people tend to be working like not shifts where you're where you're on the rig for nine days mm -hmm. working you know 12 hour shifts and then you're off for five days right and the fact is i think probably any job where you need to take a helicopter to the workplace is probably one where you're not going to be able to easily shorten shifts right um i mean you could imagine potentially being able to move from 12 hour shifts there to eight hours you know, if you can play around with how work is, you know, with the sort of work is allocated, if there are some things that you can safely automate. But um, I mean, I think that but, you know, even in, you know, even in, let's say, oil companies, you have plenty of other kinds of uh, kinds of work that could be shortened. Right. right. You know, front office operations, for example. Actually, an example of this would be um, Morrison's in the UK, which is a big supermarket chain. So they are moving um, support staff, front office people, the corporate headquarters to a shorter work week, even though the stores themselves are not. And they are putting um, the corporate office people on staggered shifts, you know, Monday through Thursday, Tuesday through Friday, so that they can still deal with calls from the supermarket. They can, you know, deal with logistic stuff, inventory issues, etc. Um, but at the same time, um, begin the experiment of reducing working hours and seeing if this is something that can work in the supermarket industry. So even if you can't implement it across an organization all at once, mm -hmm. um, you know, these kinds of small experiments can be the beginning of a longer effort to shorten, you know, to shorten work weeks, you know, across your company. You alluded earlier to the Japanese in, and I would really like if you could explain this to our listeners, because to me, what it really showed was the um, advantage of having a nonlinear um, background, a resume, which I think often <laughs> like, you know, um, professionals who are turning back to the paid workforce might fall into that same category. So if you could share that please absolutely so uh jinya is an inn between tokyo and yokohamas and it's on a site that has been an aristocrat's property or an inn since about the 12th century or so continuously and uh, in around 2008 or so um the inn was taken over by um a couple actually the children of the sort of the son and daughter-in-law of sort of the previous owners 
And the son was um, a fuel cell engineer who had, you know, worked at, you know, one of the big Japanese electronics companies, didn't really know a lot about running a, you know, running, running an inn, but, you know, the parents were getting older and, and they felt obliged to, you know, to take it on. And, you know, Japanese inns are a very, very traditional industry. You know, an awful lot of the stuff was still be, you know, the accounts were still being done, you know, like with literally um, on paper with, you know, fountain pens. Wow. And so the first thing that they did was bring in a lot of technology to modernize backend operations to make, res- you know, to put reservations online, to do all the kinds of things that we associate you know, in a world of, you know, Expedia and mobile check-ins. Right. Um, they also redesigned an awful lot of the jobs. So uh, consolidate a lot, of, a lot of part-time jobs into full-time positions. They eliminated the, you know, um, the front desk where people had to, where guests normally had to go to get things or ask questions and gave all the employees tablets and smartphones so that they could, you know, if they encounter, so if a guest encountered them anywhere on the, on the grounds, they could, you know, put in a special order for dinner, deal with whatever problem, order something else for them as needed right there in real time. They also did two other really interesting things, which was they started installing um, sort of, uh, and while they were doing this, they also were moving, reducing the number of days that the inn was open because, you know, anyone in the hospitality business knows that like Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday are kind of, you know, are often, um, sort of pretty quiet periods. Mm-hmm. And so they started, they started closing on, first a couple of those days and finally moved to a four-day week, which gave them more time to train people, um, more time to experiment with new things like a catering business, um, leaving the, you know, allowing uh, film crews to come in Mm -hmm. and use the location because it's a very beautiful site, but also to experiment with other kinds of technologies that you could use to make to make managing the inn and the experience of being there more pleasant. So um, the owner started installing sensors and automatic license plate readers and cameras in like the driveway. So that, you know, when people, when cars drove up, you could read the license plate and you knew who was coming. So you could start the check-in process. You could go out, you could greet them by name. Um, you know, if you, if they had been there previously, you could, you know, ask how their dog was doing and, you know, how was the drive, you know, up from, you know, sort of from Osaka Mm -hmm. and, you know, generally do all those kinds of things that make for a really, a really great high touch experience in hospitality. They also started um, putting sensors in things like uh, the hot baths and sort of uh, and like uh, the towel storage, so that people didn't have to like go in and check multiple times a day if something needed to be refreshed. Mm-hmm. Like basically, the inn was starting to communicate its needs back to the staff, and so and finally, um, the owners started linking all the stuff together with software that they then turned into a new product 
called Genia Connect, which they have since gone on to sell, to spin off into a second business, wow. which um, now services several hundred other inns across Japan, thereby helping to modernize one of the most traditional industries in the nation. Um, but, you know, doing so in a way that allows them to, uh, to fulfill very traditional goals of providing outstanding service, of you know, maintaining a site that often has been in continuous use for hundreds of years, that may have been in the same family for generations and generations, around which there is a sense of a need to, you know, to not just operate a business, but to preserve a place and to preserve a kind of cultural institution and a way of life that is, you know, uh, that is seen as really essentially Japanese. So that's the story of Genia, of Genia. And I think it's a, rem you know, it is, it is a brilliant example of how this combination of moving from the kind of lateral move from one field into another combined with time for leisure, time for thinking about how you can take the skills that you've brought into this new realm and apply them in novel ways um, can create opportunities and of an innovation that you wouldn't see in an inn that was running you know, six or seven days a week. So that's the story. Thank you so much for sharing. I just thought it was so fascinating. Now I know we're coming closer to an end and I could talk with you forever but so one thing i wanted to ask because we've been talking very positively about all these great implementations somebody listening here who is debating whether or not they might try it out they might be also saying well was there any example or any situation where a potential trial of going to a four-day um, work week did not work out? And if so, mm -hmm. what were the reasons why it didn't work out? Right. I've got a couple. I should, uh, I need to uh, preface, uh, preface this with a caveat that um, companies are often pretty reticent to talk about their failures. Yeah. And so, you know, it's a lot easier to get companies that have managed, uh, you know, managed to move to a four day work week to talk about their success right. than, you know, to get ones that tried it and failed to reflect on why it didn't work. Um, in one case, uh, which was uh, a video production company in Hong Kong. So they do lots of commercials and business videos, that sort of stuff. They moved to a four-day week and let everybody choose what day off they were going to take. And they found that you know, sort of deadlines and production and stuff was not a problem, mm -hmm. but it turned the office into a ghost town because you know, every day you've got people out pitching clients, you've got other people who are out on filming locations. And so between that stuff and people being off one day a week, it just became really difficult. It just didn't feel like the same place. Mm -hmm. And so after about three months or so, the founder decided, all right, we're gonna, we're gonna go back to a five day week because this is just, you know, this is just having too much of, a, too much of an impact on company culture. In another case, um, a place that uh, did uh, tourism and kind of web design for uh, companies like Cruise Lines mm -hmm. and you know other firms in um, the travel industry. 
that business consisted partly of a marketing arm and a software arm. And when they moved to a six hour day, it's like the software people were sort of a little older and more experienced and they kind of understood how to do the work, how, how to identify inefficiencies and use Pomodoro or other software sort of software techniques in order to reduce working hours. They didn't really have a problem with it. The marketing people in contrast were generally younger and they felt and they worried that they didn't really know the work well enough to know how to redesign it. Oh. And so, you know, after about six months or so, um, and uh, the, they actually divided the company into two, in, into, into two firms. The software side continued doing six-hour days, and the tourism marketing agency side went back to a conventional eight-hour day. I think one of the lessons there is that you really need you really need workers who are older and more experienced, who have an understanding of their work, and who have both the experience and the confidence necessary to say, you know, I've been doing this long enough to know what's stupid about the companies I've worked at and to be able to redesign this work to fix it. Right. Um, if you lack that, then it's harder, you know, it's harder to feel certain that given the opportunity, you'll be able to successfully make the transition to a four day week. Um, and then there's one other example, uh, tower paddle boards in Southern California that operated on a, f actually moved down to a five-hour day okay and um they backed away from that when amazon got into the paddle the the paddleboard business and basically you know sort of killed off a whole bunch of their revenues so yeah. you know that was that that was that was less about cultural changes though they kind of the founder kind of felt like there was a certain loss of a sort of startup atmosphere after a while and much more about revenues going from 7 million to 1.5 million wow. in 12 months. Is there anything you would like to share with our listeners that we haven't touched upon? Sure. I mean, I think that, you know, the one thing that I would say is I've been struck over the last few months and my book came out literally just when COVID was hitting the U.S. and starting to close down businesses that one of the things that I have been tracking is how even now in the last six months, I've seen companies moving to fully remote operations that have also discovered that the pandemic has given them an opportunity to redesign how they work and to move to a four day week. And even under these stressful conditions, what I'm, you know, I am observing companies that are finding that by going all remote, you have to tighten up your processes. You've got to, you know, you've got to basically take, you know, take work and put it into software, mm -hmm. and that doing that requires that you be a, that you be really explicit about roles and responsibilities and stages in your production process. That the combination of increased productivity that that has brought, and the heightened need for people to have time to care for family, to, you know, be homeschool assistant teachers, to do all of that other work. Together has inspired a whole bunch of companies to adopt at first temporarily and often permanently um, four-day weeks. 
And so I think what it teaches us is that you know, this is you know, the pandemic has opened up an opportunity to rethink a whole bunch of things about how we work. I know a year ago there were, you know, managers or uh, or company heads who said remote work is a hill I will die on. Right? We will never be able to do this in my company. I need to see people in the office every single day who discovered over the course of a couple of weeks that while it was the hill that they would die on, that their employees actually were able to make it work. And I think that, that you know, this, the experience, you know, for all of the destruction that it has wrought in some sectors should make us pause and think that, you know, as things reopen, as we move back to something like normal, we don't have to go back to the way things were. You know, we have a space in which we can change the way that we work, the times in which we work, change working hours, and that probably the experience of going through the pandemic has enabled, enabled your firm to make much bigger changes one of which could be a move to a four-day week or a six-hour day. So I think that's, you know, and that doing so would be a way of, de of helping, companies, helping companies build resilience and creativity and sustainability. It would also be a way of helping to deal with some of the emerging challenges that the pandemic has brought. In particular, Sort of a movement of women out of the workforce, mm -hmm. um, and I think a you know a, a potential loss of the gains that women have made over the past twenty or so years, and the four-day week could go a long way to helping helping give those back, um, because I think that those are gains that nobody see that nobody wants to lose. Right. Um, I think you know only only the heart only the most hardened chauvinist who probably is not listening to this podcast, um, you know, would see this as a good thing. So um, I think that the sort of that, uh, that the pandemic has made clear that we don't have to work the way that we always did, that technology has enabled us to make some fairly dramatic and positive changes in how we organize companies, how we organize our work and how we organize our days and that we should take full advantage of that um, or going forward. Thank you so much, Alex. Now, um, how can our listeners find you? Oh, that's a great question. So um, my book is just called Shorter. And so if you, you know, Google my name and Shorter, it will, you know, or if, um, offers, offers to buy it will sort of come up through the search engine of your choice. Um, on Twitter and Instagram and other social things, uh, my handle is askpang, A-S-K-P-A-N-G. And my company is Strategy and Rest. And the URL there is strategy.rest. Rest now very conveniently for me, being a top-level domain. And finally, I'm actually also um, launching a series of online courses that allow people to sort of do online 
um, the exercises that I have traditionally taken companies through over the course of a day or two in person. And so, you know, the idea is to make this accessible to, you know, to organizations or to small companies who normally wouldn't, you know, who are in a position to be able to make these kinds of changes, but who are not necessarily in a position to bring in a consultant for, you know, several months right. to help them, to help them do it. So, um, but you can find information about the courses and get on the list to be, you know, an early tester, um, again, at the website strategy.rest. Thank you so much, Alex. I so appreciate having you on the show and listening to all your insights and your research and all the experience you have had over many years. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Karen. It's been a pleasure talking. Thank you so much for listening to the show. We hope you gained valuable insights and new ideas. To keep listening to future episodes, please head over to iTunes or your favorite player and subscribe and give it a rating. We would very much appreciate a review and for you to share it on social media so more people can start innovating in how they offer employment. Until the next time, goodbye.